Welcome back to Talking Feds, the third of our six live programs from Washington, D.C. We've heard in the first two programs from different vantage points, but I think both detailing a kind of tough time to be at the Department of Justice. Today, in this podcast, we focus on some ex-feds who've responded to these and similar challenges by acting, putting their experience and skills to work in the service of the institutional values of the justice system and the Department of Justice, but as a kind of pushback against the administration's abandonment of aspects of its traditional central mission. And these people are also our co-sponsors for this entire series, and to them, we uh, we owe uh, all their hospitality has made us welcome here in D.C., just a few blocks from the Capitol. The Georgetown Law School Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. Um, and there, well, let me let me stop right here and ask about their main mission. Turn to Mary McCord, who's a visiting professor of law at Georgetown uh, University Law Center. She's also, notably, the former acting assistant attorney general for national security and maybe even more significantly for talking feds, a federal prosecutor for some 20 years here in the district. Mary, thank you very much. And I, I'd propose, because uh, you have a, a few of your colleagues here, that maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself and then pass the baton on to a colleague. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me here, Harry, and Talking Feds. We're glad at Georgetown to host the program this week. So I, along with my colleague Josh Geltzer, who's the executive director of the Institute, which we call ICAP, left government early in 2017, at, shortly after the transition, and helped to start this institute, which was the brainchild of Neil Katyal, who famously argued the travel ban case, in order to use the power of the courts to defend and protect constitutional rights and norms. Now, I assume, I mean, you since you were the uh, ASA for 20 years, this is not your first presidential transition. Was even in early 2017, did you have the inkling that you might be more satisfied or effective on the outside? It's kind of a daunting thing to leave government when you've been there so long. Yeah, I, I expected to retire from government, and although a lot of people think that's what I did, I was not old enough to retire, so <laughs> I just want to set that straight right off, the, right off the bat. Yes, went through many different transitions, served under Republican and Democratic administrations, never felt it difficult to do my job as a prosecutor under different administrations. Uh, coming into this administration, I certainly at that point was uh, the acting head of the National Security Division at DOJ. It's an important position. Thought I would stay. Uh, through a successor being nominated and confirmed, but that became increasingly challenging once Jeff Sessions came to the department, and it became pretty clear by March or April of 2017 that I could do more good at really sort of protecting the values that I'd spent my career working to protect uh, from outside the government rather than from inside. Okay, and you're going to introduce the gentleman on your right, but I'd ask everybody here when you're introduced to just give a couple words about just that mindset at the time. What made you decide to leave and to sort of pursue the um, things that had brought you to the Department of Justice outside the DOJ? 
Yes, I'm happy to introduce Josh Geltzer. He's our executive director. He worked with me at DOJ in the National Security Division and was also uh, had been on detail to the National Security Council in the Legal Advisor's Office and later as a senior director for counterterrorism. My colleague, my friend, Josh. Thank you, Mary, and thanks, Harry, for hosting this. And uh, let me also give listeners a sense of the rest of the ICAP team that's here uh, and who will be chiming in throughout the course of this conversation. We have Amy Marshak, a litigator at ICAP, uh, a veteran of the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Annie Owens, also a litigator at ICAP, who's served in the Office of Legal Counsel as well as in the Solicitor General's Office at DOJ. We have Nick Riley, uh, a litigator at ICAP who came to us from the Civil Division, and in particular, Civil Appellate within the Justice Department. And we have Seth Wayne, uh, also a litigator at ICAP and a veteran of the Civil Rights Division at Justice. And uh, briefly, uh, I was honored to, to work at the Justice Department, and when the transition rolled around, was honored to be on loan from Justice to the National Security Council, as Mary mentioned. And in some sense, I had a, uh, a fulfilling transition. My, my successor as senior director for counterterrorism, Chris Costa, uh, was a wonderful person to hand over the work of counterterrorism coordination to. And he has remained a, a friend since. But if you zoomed out from that, there were things happening that concerned me. The travel ban has been mentioned already. There was a broader, clear departure, not only in substance, but also in process that was occurring. And it made me feel, as Mary uh, felt as well, that I could continue the sort of mission I had signed up for from a different vantage point. And that's what led me to come to ICAP and to try to do work that would defend constitutional rights and values in the courts and elsewhere, um, but from here at Georgetown Law. Let me zero in a little bit more on that time. You know, we've had this war of words, even dating to today, where the president and press secretary will assert that there's either terrific morale or terrible morale at the FBI and DOJ when they, when Comey was fired. We were supposed to have uh, understood him to have been very popular, unpopular within the bureau. There's been a back and forth, and so we've. It's it's great to have a sort of inside vantage point. What was it like there before you left? What was it like at the water coolers? Was were were you guys really sort of outlier, you know, deep state Democrats, or was there a general kind of anxiety among the career staff for what was happening? And I'll just arbitrarily ask Nick to, you know, if he, you you were at the OJ in, in early seventeen, right? That's right. I actually yeah. left after everyone here. I left in April of twenty eighteen. Okay. So did it feel like something fundamental had changed? Um, you know, my decision to leave was was highly personal. I know that there were other people at the department who felt uncomfortable with some of the cases that were coming down the pike. They were being asked to do things that were different from things they'd been asked to do before and that made them uncomfortable. Things as in take legal positions? Take Exactly, yeah. Take legal positions on, on cases that they hadn't anticipated. I think even, you know, I left, as I said, in April 2018, and I think, you know, there were cases that were still arising at that point that people wouldn't have even predicted in April of 2017 that they would be having to take certain positions on. For me, it was a much more personal decision, and it just came down to the fact that, you know, I was, for the first time in my career at DOJ, found myself more excited about hearing the kinds of cases that my friends who were working in the civil rights world, like at ICAP, were working on than the cases that I was working on, and that was new. ICAP was already a going concern. When did you guys really, you know, become a place that someone leaving the department would think about going to? 
Well, we launched in August of 2017. We've been uh, building over the course of 2017 and beginning to put a team into place and beginning to figure out what our mission should be. But we launched in August 2017 already with the desire to have the identity that we're talking about now, to have a role in which those who had been part of the executive branch, who at times had stood up for executive branch authorities, could take that expertise, take that experience, take the credibility it might offer them in court and elsewhere, and put it to use patrolling the exercise of executive authority, among other elements of our work. And there are six of you here who all are sort of refugees from the department, but I gather you're at least nine people strong in the, the litigation unit that is ICAP. That's right. We have a team of nine lawyers uh, and and a paralegal. And even more than that, we have students here at Georgetown Law who plug into our work and um, get to train in what we hope will will be a path that leads them to becoming the next generation of uh, impact litigators. Okay. And and of course, we want to cut to your work and soon. But just to pause another minute or two on how where things stood in 2017. So, Nick, you mentioned that uh, some of your colleagues were asked to take positions at different from what they've taken before. You know, you could argue that's a routine concomitant of a change in administration. Was that basically it? Was there a sense of kind of either harshness or lack of collegiality to it? Or or the people who were here, I I will just ask Amy to speak to it. Were Were they feeling in some ways less integrated into the leadership than they had before? I imagine what you've just said is absolutely correct, Harry, which is that in any transition, there's going to be some role for the career staff to rebuild the trust of the political appointees who come in and then their more political staff to understand that everyone is trying to work toward the same common good. It seemed that in this administration, there seemed to be a continuing a little bit more of a disconnect between the career people who had been working there. I worked in a policy-related job in national security, and, and in terms of policy matters, there seemed to be a continuing effort to do things more at the political level than there had been at the end of the Obama administration. That said, there were eight years of the Obama administration to build that kind of trust with people to know that your career staff is, is representing what it is that you want to do as a policy matter. So it may have just be a matter of time, and I left before having that opportunity to build that relationship. Okay. So, I mean, part of this could be then substantive. And, you know, is it largely that? Would people uh, either on the inside, you know, basically say, oh, ICAP, they're just a a bunch of, you know, progressives and we were going a different route? Maybe, let me, Seth, what what was it like? I know when I, I have been there under Republican and Democratic administrations and felt a real difference in emphasis, say, in the civil rights area where you worked. Did you feel a sea change there? But again, was it, was to the extent there's, there was discontent, was it something greater than a change from one political party to another? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think a lot of what my experience was had to do with the specific unit I was located within in the Civil Rights Division. You were in Special Lit, is that right? Yeah, I was in the Special Litigation section, but even more specifically within the Police Practice Group. And what we did was work on reforming police departments that were engaged in a pattern of civil rights abuses. Usually, uh, those reform efforts involved something that's called a consent decree that a lot of people have heard about, which is a binding agreement in court for to institute certain reforms. Now, there was both kind of an atmospheric and a practical aspect uh, that affected how morale was within the, 
within that that section after the election, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric by both Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump during the election cycle and immediately thereafter, essentially uh, undermining the work of police reformers talking. Uh, I think Trump spoke specifically uh, in favor of police committing what we would consider to be uh, brutality or excessive force which is something that we had actively within the section been working to prevent. And then as a practical matter, there were a couple different things. First, uh, Jeff Sessions uh, instituted a review of consent decrees and expressed open skepticism about the work we were doing, which undermined our effectiveness and our ability to work with the communities. Undermine your effectiveness because the communities you would go into would know, oh, but the big boss is going gonna, is gonna, to uh, roll you when the time comes. Exactly. I mean, police reform is a challenging prospect to begin with, but it relies so much on the participation and the involvement of community, of folks in the community, that's activists and regular people who work with the police on a day-to-day basis, and, and the police departments themselves. And then when you have the leadership of your department openly expressing views that are contrary to what you're trying to do, it really affects your ability to work with folks on the ground. And then also, we, we weren't sure at the time what the internal review that was ordered by the attorney general would do as a practical matter for what we were allowed to do within the department. Well, let me stay with you for a minute, because on substance, something very important happened, right? Didn't Sessions uh, make an order that all the consent decrees would have to be signed off on by the political leadership? So in the past, I think the special lit uh, section had authority to sign these for the Civil Rights Division and for DOJ. But Sessions wanted that to be done only at the political level. Is it, first, am I accurate about it? And what did you what what did you perceive motivated that that step? I think there was always political participation of one sort or another in the consent decrees. Whether that had to go all the way up to leadership of the Justice Department or could remain within the Civil Rights Division itself and the leadership there, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I wasn't very high up myself. I was just a line attorney, but. It did, there, there was a couple different things. There was a mandated review of every consent decree by leadership of the Justice Department that I think we all believed uh, was with the intent of rolling back, kind of the obvious intent of rolling back and diminishing efforts to enforce those decrees. And then there was also that new decrees would need to receive uh, approval in a way that we all believed was with an intent of stopping those new decrees from occurring. Uh, so as a result of those things, kind of getting back to your original question, there was the wide perception within the department that we were being, or within that specific section, that we were being actively targeted by leadership um, and that we would have difficulty doing our jobs and the things we were committed to. All right. So we have a pretty good picture of why different among you might think uh, things might be more um, uh, hospitable or attractive outside the department. Now, when I thought about leaving the department, a place like ICAP didn't exist. So for everyone here, it's it's pretty fortunate. As I sort of see it, um, Mary, would, is this fair? You basically created this whole new litigating model that that has, in fact, permitted you to, in a in a real concrete way pursue the uh, objectives that, that brought you to the Department of Justice, but from outside. Can you, I mean, is that right? And can you give us a sense of how that works in practice? 
That's exactly right, Harry, and it works in a variety of different ways. Um, Josh mentioned that we kicked off in August of 2017. Our first brief there was a brief, an amicus brief, which is a friend of the court brief filed in the Fifth Circuit in a bail reform case. It was a class action challenging the detention of people accused of crimes before they get trial, detention solely because they couldn't pay money bail. Sort of an obvious constitutional violation, equal protection violation, because based on their poverty. And having spent almost my entire career as a prosecutor... Well, I'm so, i got to just stop you for a second, because I mean, poverty not being a suspect class. Give us, give us another sentence about why that it was an obvious equal right. protection violation. So, in the area of incarceration in criminal cases, the Supreme Court has sort of expanded the doctrine, which you're right, normally would apply just to suspect classes like race and gender and things like that, but has applied it to uh, originally in cases that said you couldn't extend someone's sentence of incarceration solely because they were too poor to pay a fine, for example, because sometimes if people were fined, they I couldn't see, pay their fine. That's almost like debtor's prison. Exactly. Yeah. It's a okay. debtor's prison. So the idea here was the same, that a person who could afford to pay bail, paid bail, went free, awaited their trial. A person who couldn't afford to pay, pay bail, which is many, many, many people, were just detained pretrial, which might be weeks or months or even longer. And so having been a prosecutor most of my career, I thought, well, that's pretty awful, and that doesn't exist in the federal system. So quickly drafted up an amicus brief, and within a a very short period of time had 67 current and former prosecutors, federal, state, and local, sign on to that amicus brief that we filed in the Fifth Circuit. This is something that showed that we could bring people together. Some of these were Republican officials. Some of these were Democrat officials. Some were actually current elected officials. The actual sitting DA of Harris County, Texas, the very place where the case had been brought in Harris County, signed on to our amicus brief. And that showed that there is this area of intersection where people, even who on many issues their views diverge, could come together to agree that there's something here to fight about. And in fact, the Department of Justice had, in some of these bail reform cases, had filed its own briefs in support of the plaintiffs. Um, and, and after... Well, you, oh, you mean pre-17? Pre-17, yeah. that's right. And um, in... And, uh, through, and through what section would that have been? How would the Department of Justice have entered into that? Also as an amicus? And, and well, they just filed a statement of interest, generally uh-huh. speaking, um, and, get it, and, and have done that in a number of cases. And they had done that in a case in Georgia, Calhoun, Georgia. And then after the change in administration, they, at the next stage of that litigation, still entered a statement of interest, but it wasn't in support of the plaintiffs there. It wasn't in support of the people who had been detained unconstitutionally. It was in in support of neither party. Uh-huh. Um, so, And did they change their constitutional position? I presume the first one said there's a constitutional problem and the second So they didn't, they didn't change the position that there was an equal protection violation. They changed the position about how long a person could be detained before they got an individualized hearing. Um, and that's where they took up the sides. Um, all right. Well, so if you're taking a federal constitutional position. It is exactly the kind of thing that the department might have done that you might have done and you know mary mccord for the united states if this, except this is mary mccord for the united states but not for the united states <laughs> so I, this is a really remarkable kind of practice uh, annie could i just ask you for you know something that you've worked on and that's another concrete example in particular of either the work or the position that you feel 
would normally or previously have have uh, fallen to a Department of Justice lawyer to assert? Well, sure. And I will begin this answer with a caveat that I have been with ICAP for about three weeks now. So I'm the How's newest member of the team. It's going great. How's the food? Um, <laughs> great. <laughs> um, but one of the things that, that drew me to ICAP initially was some of these creative theories that they were employing in litigation, um, including in uh, Charlottesville, to sue militias for unlawful paramilitary activity under state law. So I want, to, but I just want to ask you quickly. So three weeks ago, you come here. You were leaving the department. Did, where else did you consider? I'm just thinking. A year ago, there wasn't such a thing or two as an ICAP. So did that leave you? You know, what else would be out there for someone who wants to do progressive work? Sure. Well, as a litigator, everyone here are you know are litigators, right? I mean, that's your you're you're in so. I have been a litigator on and off during my career. I began my career as a litigator, um, actually as a Bristow Fellow in the Department of Justice in the Solicitor General's office in 2007-2008 during the George W. Bush administration. Then I went to a law firm, and after that I went back to the Department of Justice, and I was in the Office of Legal Counsel until February 2017. I left, and actually, before coming to ICAP, I spent the last two years working for the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, And that was a way for me to continue my government service and still work on issues that I really cared about and and try to effectuate uh, change that that I really believed in. Uh, I would think that'd be pretty valuable sort of rounding out experience, just how things go on the Hill, not pure litigation, but almost kind of strategy and policy. That's right. But I, so I'd, I'd like to, you know, go back to this and and um, uh, maybe Josh, you can frame it for us. But Charlottesville, to uh, you know, to, to people out there, we we have the, um, the the basic recollection of the events there and the president's shocking ambivalence, or on the one hand, on the other hand, kind of reaction. What legal opening did it provide? you guys and how did you exploit it? Well, let me tee it up and then turn things over to Mary, who's really masterminded this this litigation in Charlottesville and since then beyond. But the, the experience of, of that weekend uh, was the, the horror of, of the this co- remind us a little for people. Give us the basic. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is you know August 2017, and I think around the globe, people watched as this, in some ways, quintessential city embodying American democracy, right? This is a, a college town. The college was founded by Thomas Jefferson, of all folks. And on its streets, it's, it's uh, violence breaking out. It's, it's uh, in a sense, rogue armies pitted against each other, um, fighting, including with, with some pretty serious weaponry at times. And Mary and I, uh, I remember coming into the office Monday morning. I think there were just uh, three of us at that point at ICAP. We had just launched the week before with the filing of that uh, amicus brief Mary talked about in, in the bail reform case. And we sat down a little uh, bewildered and a lot chagrined by what we'd seen that weekend. And we began to say, it's not enough to just say the First Amendment protects hateful speech, though that's true. And it's not enough to say that the Second Amendment protects, in certain contexts, the right to bear arms, though that's true. What more is there that law can do to try to push back on what we saw? And maybe that's where I'll invite Mary to, to talk about it, because she's the one who began to figure out an answer to that question. By the way, how cool. There are three of you, something like this just happened, and you go and like, well, why don't, you know, you're just making it the sort of small-time law firm, but the huge kind of 
goals and um, you know basic mission of the Department of Justice. Well, you know, one of the things I was outraged about is we had watched James Fields ram his car into a group of counter-protesters killing Heather Heyer and seriously, seriously injuring dozens of others. And having just been head of national security a few months before, I was like, I know what this is. This is terrorism. Yeah, and by the way, when you were head of national security, that encompassed domestic national, that encompassed the sort of McVeighs and Unabombers of the world, not simply, correct? Well, theoretically, yes, but, but you know, the focus since 9-11 has been on international terrorism. I mean, that's where the most resources have gone. We were very concerned about domestic terrorism. We knew it was on the rise. But what was really unique about this is just in the previous two years, we'd been seeing all over Western Europe and other places the use of vehicles to commit terrorist attacks, which would be prosecuted as terrorist attacks. Yet here in the United States, because we don't have a domestic terrorism statute, we saw James Fields do the same thing and not be prosecuted as a terrorist. So you're probably wondering, how am, ticket, I, right? yeah. how am I getting to Charlottesville? So I went actually on to Lawfare, it's a national security blog, to write a piece calling for a domestic terrorism statute saying we need to treat James Fields as the moral equivalent of the terrorists who've done similar attacks, and saw this really interesting post by Philip Zellico, a history professor at the University of Virginia, who used to be a constitutional civil rights lawyer in the 70s and 80s, and had used, along with the Southern Poverty Law Center, had used state anti-private paramilitary law and anti-militia law to get court-ordered injunctions against the militia wing of the KKK. So back in the, and these had gone to cases in both Texas and North Carolina, and um, SPLC and uh, Professor Zellico had been successful in getting these court orders. And literally, I called Josh, we were in a very small office, so all I had to do was say, hey, Josh. (laughs) Um, And I said, look at this, we could do this in Virginia, because these groups who came, whether it was the self-professed militias, the Pennsylvania Lightfoot, the New York Lightfoot that came looking like the National Guard, dressed in full fatigues, AR-15s, helmets, flak jackets, boots, etc., or whether it was the white supremacist groups who came with their shields and their clubs and their bats and the batons, they were acting like little private militias. And that's unlawful. It, by well, and more than that, right? wasn't one side of them literally masquerading as wearing the and which of course that would be a federal crime and yes. I, I so my immediate question had been where what into what breach were you stepping how would the doj normally go about it but that would if you impersonate it's the same thing as if you pretend to be in the fbi that the feds will come after mm-hmm. you but here they were not there had not been early on. Now, Grant, this is just a couple of days after the after the event. The only, there had been very few arrests made, um, and certainly no federal charges at that time. And it wasn't for many, many, maybe a year later before there were any, any federal charges brought against James Fields, and those were hate when did, crimes and when charges. did Trump weigh in? He weighed in the very day, the very evening of, saying that there were very fine people on both sides, which we disagreed with vehemently. But anyway, we we gathered together, and one of our colleagues who's not part of this podcast, because he's uh, not a former Fed, Daniel Rice, spent literally hundreds, if not thousands of hours watching um, videos from the events. We made multiple trips back and forth, interviewed people there, and we filed our lawsuit two months to the day after um, the United the right rally on October 12th, uh, 2017. And the, the, the lawsuit said what? Because I thought you, you had a legislative initiative in mind. What was your lawsuit? So the lawsuit was to to uh, use these state anti-paramilitary laws, bring private causes of action. Did they provide for them? So 
Private cause of action. Oh, they didn't provide. Oh, this is really not explicitly. genius here. <laughs> well, wow. everybody's, everybody's So genius. there's a law that just says you can't have them, and you said we want a any citizen to be able to so you had a standing so, so more specific this. than that we had, one was a constitutional provision uh-huh. that says in all cases the military shall be strictly subordinate to the civilian authorities meaning no rogue militias the others were criminal statutes saying you can't engage in paramilitary activity and then we used a public nuisance theory so we represented the city of charlottesville went down met with all of the council members and the mayor they voted to uh join the lawsuit we represented small businesses um who had been subjected to the militias coming along and, and really threatening their shops and their shopkeepers. Um, and we represented neighborhood associations. And so one of the first things we had to do, of course, was make arguments that, that you could bring such a cause of action for an injunctive relief, for not for money. This wasn't for damages done. This was to prevent them from coming back in the future. And so and, and we, it was also important because of the First and Second Amendment to use a theory that was not based on content or viewpoint. Right. right. So the beauty of this is is that this is about conduct. It's about violent conduct and paramilitary conduct that's not protected by the First Amendment. And even though these are people who, in many cases, were bearing arms, the Second Amendment only protects, as the Supreme Court has told us, the individual right to bear arms for one's own individual self-protection and not to form a militia. So we use those theories successfully. I got to say, as a former Fed, it's like sort of stunning to think that you would take a criminal law that just applies and, and, and try to find or find assert a private uh, right of action uh, under it. That would make um, you know your, your head spin within but it, uh, the department, but it also points out you know a kind of fabulous um, nature of your practice that it's you know I love being in the Department of Justice. Most people love being in the Department of Justice. On the other hand, it's this huge bureaucratic place and there's ways you do things and go-tos, indictments, and you guys are just like making it up and beautifully like, <laughs> like a scrappy little little litigation firm. Yeah. And Harry, I wonder if we might invite Amy yeah. to say a few words too, because Amy was with Mary and me and others from the team that day. And just, I wonder if Amy, you'd talk a little about what the experience was like, because having this, the, the city council vote and walking over to the courthouse, it really uh, was, um, I thought, quite a remarkable day. Yeah, it was a, it was a, By know, the way, did you win? Yes. yes, we did. We, I can start with that. Yeah. We did win. Uh, we have gotten uh, basically consent decrees with um, each of the defendants, most of them all through settlement eventually. And by settlement, we got the consent decree that they would not come back and do the thing that we didn't want them to do. So it wasn't much of a settlement on our side. It was getting the, the decree that we asked for. No, I just want to, because you were just threatening, you weren't threatening them with money damages or anything. You were just you asked for an injunction and the settlement was they said we won't come i mean that's pretty total victory yes uh, so we did have to litigate some of the legal issues uh with two of the defendants ultimately litigated through the motion to dismiss stage in virginia it's called the demurrer stage uh some of the the key legal issues in the case interestingly those were not the main militia groups who were the ones fighting it uh th- that you would think of it was a left-wing militia and jason kessler the organizer of the unite the right rally the trial court judge in the state court in Virginia ultimately ruled in our favor on pretty much everything, um, that there were plaintiffs who had standing, that these were viable theories, you could bring them under criminal statutes and the Did Constitution. Did the other side have lawyers? They did have lawyers. Some of them were colorful. They were actually two people. One one is a, uh, a gentleman who regularly represents these sort of right-wing uh-huh. causes, and one is the one who represented the left-wing militia group. 
generally represents left-wing militias, and they commented us, to us that they've never shared a council table before um, in litigation. Um, <laughs> so that was an interesting pairing. But after the, the, the trial court judge ruled in our favor on all these legal issues, those, those two remaining groups entered into consent decrees without going to trial, ultimately. And Annie, I don't know if you would uh, know this, but, but relatedly, did you try in any way, or is it part of your normal practice to get the department to come in on your side, to file a brief? Any, you know, uh, was that part of the idea, Mary? We did not seek this in this case, partly because we were in state court, well, what's uh, that? very I mean, purposefully. Sound, what percent, are you mainly in state court, would you say? No, we are in state and federal courts in many, many states across the country. We've been in almost every circuit by this point um, because this is just one, you know, of the cases we've brought, and we've we've brought many others. And we are litigating now in the Sixth Circuit in a case that does involve the U.S. government. Um, that that is, was the one. I was. It's a Nagawala yes, case. Yes. So yeah, this is an unbelievable case, and you and here you really are. You know, weeding in their garden, you could say, and in, 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 I'm sure. I wonder if we should have a rebuttal panel. But an amazing case. Yeah, who who uh, who who can sort of set that the tone for us on that one? Well, I'm happy to, to start. So, uh, to give a little bit of, of the backstory here, for a couple decades, there's been on the books a federal law criminalizing the practice of female genital mutilation, and. Uh, a couple of years ago, the first major prosecution was brought under it in the Detroit area. A uh, number of defendants, a number of years of activity. Fe this is a federal case. Correct. Federal federal prosecution. And the defendants, uh, in resisting the, the charges, specifically the, the female genital mutilation statute charges, uh, made an argument in the district court that the law was unconstitutional. And uh, a district judge ruled in the defendant's favor, um, found that the, the law that had been passed exceeded Congress's authority under the Commerce Clause as well as under the Treaty Clause combined with the Necessary and Proper Clause. So not a, not a religious claim. Their, their argument was just no, no uh, legislative power, like a, like a Lopez case. That's right. That's right. And the Department of Justice um, filed a notice of appeal, uh, as you would expect when a federal judge has invalidated part or all of a federal statute. And after some um, number of extensions, as yeah. not only would you expect, this is what I, I, you can't think uh, when a district court invalidates a duly passed congressional statute. That's that's appeal. The, the solicitor general has to approve it, but it's almost an automatic kind of thing. You have to defend. So that's almost. sort of their job, right? <laughs> that's what the taxpayers pay for, among other things. But it's to defend uh, the, picky, the constitutionality picky. of of federal laws and. After a, a, a protracted delay, uh, this Justice Department indicated that it was not going to be defending on appeal the constitutionality of this law, that it believed that it had no plausible arguments to make in defense of this law. And this struck us as wrong. We'd followed this case since seeing the district court's ruling. Uh, it's, it, it strikes us that the when, law... When did, now, when did this happen? Uh, the letters, they're called 530D letters, the right. statute that requires the executive branch to inform the Senate and the House when the executive branch uh, 
it will no longer be defending or implementing a federal law because of a belief that it's not constitutional or some other grounds. And this was a few months ago now that those 530D letters were sent. And But the prosecution itself in Michigan had been before 2016? Is that is that right? You know, the investigation began before the change in administrations. Mm-hmm. The charges were brought after the change in administrations. And the defense of the statute by the Justice Department in the district court was under the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. It was under the Trump Justice Department. I mean, it's such a reflexive thing to do. You, that, yeah, right. Okay. Right. It's it's a, it's a uh, assistant U.S. attorneys wanting to keep working through a prosecution that they had sure, surely worked very very hard to put together. Uh, that advocacy groups had been urging for a long time. Uh, that they wanted to see this law utilized in this sort of way to make a statement um, beyond mere rhetoric about what a what an awful practice this is. And, and we know that the bureau had been very very intent in f- investigating had been you know really looking for for opportunities yeah. to investigate FGM because it's such an abhorrent practice. So a lot of resources and efforts of the federal government what, had gone FGM? into this. What's FGM? Have you, you female genital oh, mutilation? Oh, I'm sorry. Female genital okay, mutilation. So, so right. just to zoom forward, that's yeah. where we we at ICAP have have gotten involved, and we've. Um, we are representing the U.S. House of Representatives in moving for the House to intervene in the case for the limited purpose of doing what the Justice Department should be doing and defending the law. Well, okay, so that that last bit is really interesting. Annie, maybe you can speak to that. I mean, normally, it, you know, the the Congress passes something and then it's to the executive to enforce. Is this a maneuver you've experienced or tried before? Have you been involved in trying to make what the lawyers would call a standing argument, an argument that ICAP has a right to be in there on behalf, or really that the Congress has a right to be in there arguing for the law when the department uh, will not. Sure. Um, I personally have not been involved in that kind of litigation, but I will underscore that it is exceedingly rare for the uh, for the Department of Justice to refuse to defend a law passed by Congress when it's struck down on constitutional grounds. You almost never see that. Annie, I wonder if you could say a word from your time in the Solicitor General's office. Kind of what, how would you characterize the bar for trying to defend a federal law? I would say that the default presumption is that it is the Solicitor General's job to defend that law, and there really have to be strong, strong arguments that the law itself is not constitutional. Of course, it happens, right? This happened it, with Sally Yates, right, and the uh, immigration order. Well, and it and, happened and, in the DOMA case. Right. Um, um, but but so, I feel like yeah. we are seeing it a, a lot lately. Yeah. It's uh, happening in in the ACA case in Texas right now. Well, uh, certainly, you know, there's been a portion of the um, the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, has been challenged by a number of states, and the Department um, of Justice changed its position in that case from defending the statute to agreeing with the states that at least parts of the statute, well, that entire basically the whole statute had to be invalidated on constitutional grounds. The House of Representatives also inter- intervened in that case, and their intervention and other arguments are being argued today. So it's another situation where the Department of Justice changed positions, which, again, is not unheard of. I mean, when administrations change, uh, sometimes that can happen. But usually the department proceeds with great caution in that because, you know, the integrity of the department, the integrity of the law the and the rule right. of law 
is is based on not just it changing with political whims, right? And so it's very rare to see this, even though oftentimes with the change in administration, political people coming in might think, boy, if I'd have been here when we started litigating this, we might have litigated it differently. But they don't they don't necessarily change change up positions. But so and this is really I just want to emphasize this from having been involved in some things. I mean, I'm, it's it is close to unheard of, and it's nothing like. Uh, just taking the position that something is unconstitutional, you really have to have no good faith, reasonable argument. Uh, what I recall is the the uh, many many uh, people went to law school, studied the case in which the Supreme Court struck down a flag burning statute that Texas had passed, Texas versus Johnson. The for the next month, the federal government came in and basically passed the exact same statute. So under Texas versus Johnson, that statute was unconstitutional as the day is long. But the Solicitor General's office felt exactly this obligation that Mary is speaking about and went forward and went to the the courts and tried to defend it and got you know the the Solicitor General Ken Stark got his head handed to him. But it was it was by discharging the responsibility that you have to Congress basically to make any um, reasonable argument in favor of the constitutionality of a congressional uh, provision. All right, but so back to uh, uh, Nagarwala. You know, what are the, what, what's now on your plate? Are you guys the main people sort of carrying forward the constitutional argument and is the department just completely AWOL on it? Where, where do things now stand? I'd prefer a department that was AWOL on this <laughs> rather than what we have. Instead, the Justice Department has Oppose the House, even intervening in the case for the purpose of um, making arguments to the court about why this law is is constitutional. So you have opposition is unconstitutional. Uh, well, we, the, the House wants to make arguments for its constitutionality, but the DOJ is coming in and making DOJ is saying a the law is unconstitutional and b the House shouldn't even be allowed to argue to the contrary in front of the Sixth Circuit. And that motion for the House to at least make those arguments is at least as of our recording. Pending at the Sixth Circuit. Well, you nine do strike me as extremely um, lucky. Maybe that's part to do with uh, Georgetown, but what a what a sort of on the one hand nimble, on the other hand kind of progressive um, little law firm or big growing law firm you are. Let's just uh, we're, we're we're I guess are near the end of time, but I, I wonder if we could just do, kind of go down from you know Seth back to Amy and have uh, a, a you know ask you. Would you contemplate now ever returning to the Department of Justice? There are some advantages to the flag and the pin, or do you do you feel now that um, you know those days are are gone? I I think those days appear to be gone for right now, but that doesn't mean they couldn't return under the right circumstances. I don't think I would rule out returning to government under the right circumstances. The question is just for myself. I think where I can best. Ac- feel like I'm best positioned to pursue the goals I have for making the criminal legal system better uh, for the people in this country. If that's within the Justice Department and it becomes a place where it's effective at pursuing the kind of reforms that I believe in, then I think that would be a possibility. For now, I think we, uh, on the outside, our organization and others that do this kind of work are much better positioned to do that. Let me just follow up with you briefly. You, you, you must still have friends in special lit, no? Are they, are they continuing to sort of, you know, toil with, with 
morale issues? And it's, it's a hard place to be these days, best you can tell. It's, I don't want to make life difficult for any of the people who I know who I are currently working yeah. that, and yeah. I won't, but I, yeah. I think it remains a challenging place. I think yeah. particularly more than anything uh, because of the, the, the personnel shortages they've had. There was a hiring freeze in place for a very long time, um, and as attrition occurred, they weren't able to hire right. to fill those gaps. As a result, uh, for the consent decrees that are and have been in place, you know, there remains a group of very dedicated and skilled lawyers who are trying to uh, pursue the goals of, of reforming these police departments and achieve the outcomes intended by these consent decrees and have been facing the challenge of trying to do that with very limited resources. Um, Amy. Sure. So uh, in terms of whether I see myself back in government, I was not in the Department of Justice for nearly as long as Mary was, but I loved it. I'm sure it. she I, appreciates that characterization. <laughs> <laughs> um, I loved the opportunity to go to work every day as a career attorney and do interesting and meaningful work. Even at the working level, so much of what you do is the kind of things you want to spend your day thinking about. That said, I've had exactly that opportunity at ICAP that we get to do such interesting work and perhaps not as interesting to this audience, but the work of being at a law school is also very fun. We work with students. We get to participate in various moot courts going going on at the university and be part of the law school environment. And so that opportunity has been wonderful as well. So I wouldn't say that I'm... I, I have a hard time envisioning my future without a return to government because it is what I always saw myself doing, but it's certainly not a rush. It's been such a great opportunity to be here. By the way, so you were in national security. Was Mary your boss? Mary was my boss. I was one of her counsels for a period of time toward the end of our time there. Yes. Um, Annie. I would certainly return to the Justice Department under the right circumstances. DOJ has always really felt like home to me. Um, there are great lawyers there, wonderful career people who do great work. They've always traditionally had some modicum of de facto independence from the White House and politics, and that was something that I really cherished about it when I was there. And I, I think... In the future, again, under the right circumstances, I, I would consider going back. Yeah. Same question to you, Nick. Yeah, I think my answer is, is pretty similar to the ones that uh, Amy and Annie gave, which is, you know, I, I really did love my time at the Justice Department. It's where I learned how to be a lawyer, really. And, uh, you know, I, it, from the perspective of being in a litigating position, which I, which I was, and you know this, too, you know, there's, there's no greater privilege than standing up in court and saying, I'm here for the United States. And, and that's something that I, I really took great pride in. Uh, you're still here. They just don't know it, right? Um, Mary? So I'm older than anyone else on this panel and anyone that. else at, all, at ICUP, except maybe you, Harry, yeah. except maybe you. Um, and so I don't really foresee a return to government service. I'm enjoying very much being able to, like I said, continue my public service from a different vantage point. I see ICAP as, as long outliving this administration. As, as we've noted in some of our examples, um, even though some of our litigation is against the U.S., much is not. I mean, the Charlottesville case had nothing to do with the U.S. government. It was brought in state court. 
Uh, we've been using those theories to do additional work and help local jurisdictions to combat extremism in their communities in a way that's legal and respects First and Second Amendment rights. We've been working on criminal justice reform, which is almost entirely in the states. It's not directed at federal system, which is has its own problems, but is much, much better than many of the state systems. So there's actually, I didn't realize it in my, you know, over two decades at DOJ, how much real work there is to be done outside that, you know, to ref- to just address a lot of problems that are happening in, in the state. So I'm going to be here. I'm going to be manning the ship. I'm going to stay here. And um, I will wish well to my colleagues if they uh, do foray, take that foray back into government. Well, as usual, my colleagues have said it better than I could say it myself, which is uh, I was honored to, to work at the Justice Department, and I could envision at, at some point going back to a, uh, to a Justice Department. But for now, th- this, this work has been so rewarding, and as I hope you've been able to get a sense of, Harry, from this conversation, to get to do it with people who are so dedicated to this mission of protecting constitutional rights and bring to it both that background from executive branch experience, but also real creativity and ingenuity in how they approach this litigation. That is a treat every day. You guys are, are one lucky uh, one lucky group, I gotta say. Well, so I guess this is um, a timely question. I wonder if you could comment slash explain to us what happened regarding the census case and all those attorneys who are no longer involved. What, what is going on there? So I should first say that, you know, we did represent the House of Representatives in the census case in the Supreme Court. So we co-counseled with general counsel for the House. And so we need to be a little bit careful about what we say going forward, because it, it appears now that there is a new team, that there will be additional litigation in the district courts, and we expect to be involved in that litigation. That said, uh, all of us, I think, were there long enough to know that when you see a full change in team, that means one of a couple of things. And one of one of those things is that the people that were previously involved in the case no longer wanted to be involved in the case or couldn't for some reason. Um, and certainly in this case, there were representations made at all the levels of the litigation, including in the Supreme Court, about deadlines and about certain positions, which um, might have to be sort of pulled back or retracted somewhat by uh, if the case does move forward. And so that would be a very difficult thing for that first set of attorneys to do. Nick, of course, was in the Civil Appellate Division and so was uh, involved in lots of litigation over the course of his time in DOJ that involved um, you know civil litigation like we're seeing here. So I'd be uh, curious of his views on it. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be speculating like anyone else and, and have no idea what's actually happening inside the federal programs branch, which is the, the branch where the, where that change had been made. You know, I will say that it's not, I, just from reading the press coverage of this particular change, it's not that uncommon. I mean, it's certainly not frequent, but it's not that uncommon for attorneys to remove themselves from a case when when the department has, has changed its position on things. And that happens in many cases that are much less high profile and much less politically charged than the census case. So, you know, again, I, th- I agree with everything that's been said. And, and, you know, I think much of the press coverage has, you know, done a fine job of speculating, but it is just that speculating. I, I want to add to this, though, because it's true. It's that's not so unusual, except this in my, I wonder if anyone is, it seems unprecedented to me. They not only, it's not just the teams or individual attorneys, it had been in one division in civil, federal programs. It's now being taken into commercial yeah. lit. That's much more different. That's much I've more unusual. I've never heard of it, and it seems like that means everyone going up from the line attorneys to the supervisors in 
um, federal programs were either you know taken off or saying we we want no part of this. I've I mean literally I've ne has anyone ever exp uh, seen something like that occur? I, I haven't, and I just want to emphasize what's it, it's unusual and more than unusual. In other words, as Mary and I were, were talking about earlier, part of why lawyers develop specialties at the Department of Justice and elsewhere, frankly, in the practice of law is so that they can think back to how cases were handled before or at least what issues came up, and so they can do their best to see into the future and look ahead and try to, especially if you're representing the federal government, think through what does it mean for DOJ as an institution, what does it mean for the executive branches as an entity, what does it mean for this repeat player over time to make these sorts of arguments or do this sort of thing or make these sort of representations. And the idea of, of bringing in a clean team, so to speak, to take over this case at this point, in addition to being unusual, strikes me as running a real risk of losing all of those benefits of specialization and expertise, all for the sake of some push, apparent push, on, on this case after many of us thought and hoped it was resolved. Okay, okay you are the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, so my question is, how is the Constitution doing these days? And what should we be doing? What can people who listen be doing to protect it? Um, I, I'll, I'll take the second part and not the first. How the Constitution is doing is a very weighty question. But in terms of what people can do, I think understanding what is unusual about this moment and what is ordinary change of, of administrations, ordinary politicking is really important because there are some norms that are being transgressed that aren't rules written down. They're not statutes. They're no one. There are a lot of what makes the presidency. The presidency is based on an understanding of institutional practices that aren't forced upon anyone, but are part of sort of the unwritten constitution, the way our government works. And so understanding where those are being crossed, what makes the moment unusual. I also think Trying to avoid getting news fatigue is probably helpful. There are so many big things that have happened that don't even make the news. Our Nagarwala case is one of them that would be a big deal, I think, in other times. And I think most people hadn't heard of it because of the constant press of new news going on. And so trying to do your own best to analyze what is important, what is different, and what is sort of every day is, I think, an important thing. I would say, specific, speaking specifically about the criminal legal system, the constitutional protections have been weak uh, in a lot of ways for folks in the criminal legal system for many years, even predating this administration. Uh, and the reality is much of the abuses that occur occur locally, like hyper-locally. Um, so I would encourage folks, particularly folks, the kind of folks who would listen to this podcast who are unlikely to have personal interactions uh, with that system, to become aware of how those issues play out on their local level, to become informed about the people involved, that being judges and prosecutors, particularly if those folks are elected, um, and become involved with those issues locally and, and engage with folks who are doing that work on the ground where they live. Just to, to chime on to that, we just filed a brief on Friday in the Fifth Circuit uh, again, showing that th these issues uh, are hyper-local, but also are things that both people of Republican, Democratic leanings can agree on. Uh, we filed a brief in a case in the Fifth Circuit in which the local DA in New Orleans was using fake subpoenas 
to subpoena victims and witnesses to crimes who were reluctant to cooperate with prosecutors to subpoena them to come and meet with them outside of court. And these were completely created by the district attorney. They weren't real. They didn't follow the state process. The state actually has a law that allows you to seek a subpoena from the court and show good cause and and reason for getting that subpoena, and they were completely outside of that. So we brought together, for example, Mike Mukasey, the former Republican-appointed Attorney General and Larry Krasner, the current sitting elected district attorney in Philadelphia, known for his progressive views, both are signatories among three dozen other prosecutors, current and former, of both political stripes, agreeing that's just wrong. You guys are are one lucky uh, one lucky group, I got to say. Um, thanks very much. I, we're we're out of time, but Josh, Mary, Amy, Annie, Nick, and Seth, and to your three non-Fed colleagues, both for being here today and for the work you're doing. Please join me in thanking them. Thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts, and at TalkingFeds.com slash news for information about this series in Washington, D.C. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jenny Josephson, Dave Moldovan, Anthony Lamos, and Rebecca Lopatin. David Lieberman is our contributing writer. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum, Michelle Beaulieu, and Courtney Columbus. Thanks to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.